0: looks like it's that time again. Time for another fun-filled episode of Death by DVD. I'm
1: Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.
0: I am your host, Harry Scott Sullivan, and on this episode... On this episode, uh, I don't know. Let me think about it for a minute. Hmm. A western? We could do one of those. Or a video nasty A through Z. It's been a while since we've done a video nasty A through Z with Death by DVD. Uh, You know, uh, on Twitter the other day, I saw someone say that John Rambo could take Snake Plissken in a fight. We could talk about how absolutely fucking wrong that person is. two purple hearts between Leningrad and Siberia, plus being the youngest man to ever be decorated by the president. You gotta be kidding me, Rambo? That's a terrible answer. Snake all the way. Uh, I don't know. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I've got it. I've got the perfect idea. We've been getting requests to cover this movie on the show for years, going all the way back to 2009, and guess what? We have never once covered it. It's a legendary movie, absolutely evil and out of control. It's twisted. It's shocking. Oh man, it's got it all. It's a head-turning hellraiser of a movie directed by an underground legend. That's right. On this episode, we are going to discuss... Is... Is that someone knocking on the fucking door? In in the middle of trying to record an episode. Well, I guess like my crippling depression and anxiety, it won't go away by being ignored. Come in, come in.
1: Hi, Harry. What are you doing?
0: Oh, God. It's just little Timmy Trouble, our very own rascally Dennis the Menace type kid who pops onto the show every now and again for mischief that we have never once mentioned before in the history of Death by DVD. You scared me, Timmy. You know, you should never sneak up on someone like that. And it's Harry Scott. For fuck's sakes, you guys could say Hank the World's Greatest for 12 years, but you can't say Harry Scott. That just doesn't fall off the tongue. Harry Scott. Anyhow, what do you want, Timmy?
1: Goliath, the man-eating catfish was spotted down at the lake.
0: My God, Goliath, the man-eating catfish.
1: Yeah, that's what I said.
0: When was he spotted, Timmy?
1: Just an hour ago.
0: Well, that changes everything. I just, I I just don't think we're going to be able to do a show this week. You see, let me explain something to everyone. Let me explain to you the legend of Goliath, the man eating catfish. The first sighting was in 1890, but back then, he was called Goliath, the cock-eating catfish. Goliath hadn't eaten a full-grown man yet. Just, well... They're cocks. It all began with a man named Andy Feltersnatch. He was out fly fishing on the old George Lake when suddenly the water became choppy and he felt a sharp pain. He was quickly dragged under the water. He had three friends with him who immediately dove into the lake to try and save him. But it was too late. They couldn't find him. A few days later, his body washed up on the opposite shore. Cockless. The locals didn't know what to do. They thought it may be some sort of Native American curse. It wasn't until a local youth named Mo Lester and his girlfriend Helda Dick skipped school several weeks later to go spend the day at the lake that the folks of Anytown, USA had a face to the terror. Mo went into the water and began splashing Helda his back to the lake. She shouted out in terror, but he just thought she was fooling around. Helda Dick would remember the monster she saw until the day she died in 1977. A giant beast with huge whiskers and a gaping mouth the size of a dump truck. Hollow black eyes. A doll's eyes. That was the first time anyone saw Goliath. The monster catfish grabbed Mo Lester and dragged him to the muddy bottom of the lake. A few days later,
1: he washed up on shore. Dickless.
0: That's right, Timmy. Dickless gnawed right off. That's when they began calling him Goliath, the cock-eating catfish. Men came from all over the world to try and catch Goliath. Whalers from Japan, fishermen from Alaska, Professionals from all walks of life. But no one could catch him, or even catch a glimpse of him. It was almost like the beast knew. And then, things fell silent for a while. In 1901, Goliath struck again. This time a logger named Ben Dover went for a swim to cool off one hot July afternoon. It had been so long since an attack the lake had become a fairly popular spot. Dozens of people saw the creature rise from the brackish depths of the lake and drag poor Bendover down into the darkness. But this time, no body was ever found. <laughs> The folks of any town USA began to suspect the worst, and the lake was abandoned. Everyone was too afraid of Goliath to even go near Old George's Lake. Over the last 100 years, there have been dozens of reports, sightings, missing people, even unsolved mysteries came out in the late 1980s to do an episode on Goliath. But it never aired. They say the cameraman himself disappeared while out on the lake. Dozens of sightings, but none confirmed. Timmy, do you know what this means? We are going to catch this cocksucker. Cock. Eater. Whatever. Yeah, we're gonna go catch Goliath, the man eating catfish. I guess, I I guess there's just not going to be an episode of Death by DVD this week. I mean, you can go hear all six parts of Who Shot Hank, an all-original murder mystery audio drama by Death by DVD at deathbydvd.com. Or you can... Oh, you know what? I've got an idea. Finally!
1: Listening to you is like watching old people fuck.
0: Jesus Christ, kid. What the fuck? You barge in here to tell me about the catfish like you own the place and now you're going to be an asshole? Shut the fuck up, Timmy. Alright, so what I am going to do is play Dune Part 1 again since it's been... One, two, three, three... Yeah, three, three months since that came out. And then, then here's the kicker. On the next episode next week, we can finally put out Dune Part 2. Ooh! Ah. I've got part 1 right here on tape. Let's find that sucker and put it in. Tape, how old are you? God damn kid, would you stop busting my balls? Like you Have any to bust. Loser. You little fucking shit. You know, hey, hey, Timmy, how much do you weigh? I don't know. I guess about 80 pounds. Huh. Gonna need to swing by the bait and tackle shop for some heavier weight fishing line. Hmm. All right, Timmy. I got my keys. Let's go. What do we need
1: heavier line for?
0: Uh don't worry about it. Let's go catch us a catfish. Hey, 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 hey. Don't 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 whistle that. Uh Ron Howard sent some goons to my house after the last time I used that on the show and uh you know uh Oh, you know what? I almost forgot to hit play. So until next week, here is The Spice Must Flow Death by DVD Does Doom Part 1. Death by DVD. Death by DVD. We will be back. For now, we've gone fishing. Death by DVD
1: Does Doom Part 1.
0: This is Death by
2: DVD. I am Hank the World's Greatest, and the spice must flow.
0: Here on decree from the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, it's I, Alexander
3: Nash. I would ask that for the remainder of this episode, you refer to me as my new name, Usul.
2: I uh, got nothing. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) What is the name of the mouse that lives on the moon? That shall be my name. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't figured it out, we're talking about Dune on this episode. Doing drugs. Dune Dune drugs. Doing drugs. That joke's not funny. You can't say it. You can only type it. That joke's only funny on Twitter. Fuck. (laughs) <laughs> damn that was the whole intro man that was like oh, i got this dune joke about doing drugs but you can't say it you fucking
3: can't say it I it can't. just sounds too similar
2: uh, oh well we are going to be talking about dune on this episode and and many variations or iterations
3: i guess you could say of dune all of them i guess we're gonna talk about this this very well maybe we'll, we'll like go over a lot of the different ones we'll be in and out of stuff because this is just going to be our Base thoughts on, of course, the new Dune, but how it kind of stacks up with all the other Dune productions in the book and all, you know, all things Dune. I, but we will not be talking about any sort of expanded universe, board games, computer games, none of that stuff. I. This is strictly from frank herbert's Dune stuff for the most part
2: there there might be points because i have a, a little bit of knowledge on the brian herbert stuff that i can we if it comes up if it comes up is it's going to be discussed and i'll say this right now because i've gotten shit before because i never tell people when an episode is going to be two parts as we're recording this i have no idea what the length and runtime is going to be and if it is two parts it will be two parts here's your Acknowledgement to the audience. (laughs) Spoiler
3: warning, we might run long. Oh, I get
2: to the end of the episode and then it just fucking ends and says, Listen, next week and I was enjoying myself and you
3: never give warning. Here is the warning. I mean, the film itself, the new film, Dune Part 1, and it just kind of ends. So we're going to be in keeping with that. Yeah, we don't even
2: get the full story. Who knows what you'll get uh, on this episode itself. But my interest came I think from you with Dune that I was aware of it. I had and very similarly to The Lord of the Rings, I had tried several times throughout high school, middle school to to read it and get into it. And it just wasn't right for me at the time. I wasn't I was getting into like Henry Portrait of a serial killer at that time period. So Dune was very far from, from my universe. And in the very first version of Death by DVD, might actually have been the second version, I don't know at this point. We did a Dune show on the live version of Death by DVD many, many years ago, which was the first time I ever had seen the David Lynch movie, and I sat down and, and read the entire first book, and from that point on, it's been... Like, I, I kind of take it as really a drug addiction that you want to shake and you can't. Like, I'm not happy about it, but I'm reading the Brian Herbert shit. I'm doing it all because I... Even though I my interest seems vague at times, it's just become a part of my life. Of, all right, well, I it's... I hate bringing up the, because this will come on later in the show, but star Wars fans and Dune fans might hate each other, but there are a lot of similarities to how deep the fandom can run that it just, it kind of takes your life over. But my, my house isn't completely decorated. Like the planet Iraq is yet.
3: That's the best thing about Dune so far. It is yet to hit such a mainstream audience that it, you know, Dune birthday party plates and weird Dune merchandise that we really don't need. It's, It seems like it's cooler than a lot of the other fandoms because it isn't so heavily mass, you know, capitalized on. But at the same time, it's just as annoying as any other fandom because we all have our little specifics with Dune. How I got into it was the book was laying around my house. I had been there for years, 10, 15 years, never bothered to read it. And I picked it up and just read a chapter a day and a chapter a day I say is the best way to read dune because it gives you time to process what happened in that chapter and think about the universe and it is such a long book and the long, overall that like if you've meditated on each chapter and like lived in this universe it makes the whole thing seem so much more grandiose and interesting and from there on I went and bought all the other you know the the main Frank Herbert series dune books so I could read the entire story and got really into it for you know a period in my life and then i got to like god what is it it's book five in the frank herbert dune series and i just i just barely finished that one i've never read uh, chapter house dune but i just don't think it's particularly relevant because man does dune go some weird fucking places the the later it goes on so just it's not my thing they've just changed the universe so significantly. Like God Emperor is kind of like a weird epilogue almost that is interesting enough to read. But once you continue that story over into um, heretics of Dune, it's just like I I, all the characters I cared about every the like the universe that I was interested in is no longer relevant. I mean, it is in a past sense, but it's no longer like currently relevant to what I'm reading. And it's just, I I'm on my fucking what, 2000th Duncan Idaho and I just I I could cease to care about the character at this point I just I I don't know it's just not for me but the first three books especially that's a great little section of fantasy sci-fi shit to read and get involved with you don't have to go nuts you don't have to get on Dune wiki and but it does help understand terminology if you don't know like what certain words mean since Dune is a book that has always had a glossary that kind of shit helps. And you can kind of fall into a rabbit hole on the internet when you're doing that as you start looking up stuff and how it relates to other things. And that's kind of what's so interesting about the universe is there's just it's so rich and textured with different concepts and ideas that and there's also alien and foreign to anything that you know that you can get really lost. It's well, it's fucking Star Trek, basically.
2: Yeah, I will say what will help tremendously if you are entering the Duneverse and you're trying to read the book is to find a friend or make friends with somebody that has read it beforehand that you can go to and have discussions with. And that helped me a great deal. I think when you were on the sixth book, I was not finishing the first book, so I was able to ask, you know, what the fuck is a thropter? What is what some of this stuff this supposed to be? Because the, the style of Dune, the style it was written in, is, is very anonymous. It is written to encourage your imagination, and you're given very brief concepts and very small ideas that are, are massive parts of the structure of the story, but it'll just be like how H.P. Lovecraft would say, it's a nameless terror. What the fuck is that supposed to be? It's shapeless. Shapeless nameless terror. Did I forget to mention it's shapeless? So you can't do anything with that but imagine it, and force yourself to be creative. And Dune is very similar in that aspect, but on the other hand, it's like a Larry McMurtry novel, and he always used to joke, I, I just can't write anything short. And, that, I God, I don't think the man wrote anything under 800 pages. Dune becomes, and I think your suggestion is the best to read it one chapter at a time, it, it, it almost becomes dangerous if you try and
3: take the it entire... Gets, it gets so convoluted that if you try to take in more information than like a chapter a day... You're going to get so goddamn lost in what you just read that it's no point. Read that chapter, think about what just happened, move on to the next chapter, then the next day. And plus, it's like a great summer read or whatever. It's just read over a few month period. As you move into the next two or three books if you continue with the
2: journey you can speed it up a little bit and it, it really like by the time you get to the fourth book God Emperor which is one of my favorites you can really just read it there's it, it's the time jump that takes so drastically into the difference like you were explaining
3: <laughs> that's why I hate that book and you love it for that reason so that's I mean that's a differing opinion
2: I I think I love it for, uh, not so much even for the time jump it's what the the, the to me it's the finalization of what happens with the Atreides story that we get the completion of the golden path. And I think it lets us know massive spoilers. By the way, if you've just seen Dune 2021, you have no idea what happens in the second story. If you don't know what happens at all, you might want to tune out or brace yourself because you find out Paul Atreides is, is the bad guy and you have followed his story for, for years and years and years and years and years. And because of the actions of his son becoming a giant manworm, emperor slash God uh, allows us to see clearly that the actions of Paul Atreides, he was kind of a, a little bit of a asshole. Wasn't really kind of, was kind of a chicken too. He could have become the giant man worm and chooses not to.
3: Well, one of the things that a lot of people get wrong, especially after they've all seen the first movie is they, there's a bit of a white savior complex, you know, with the book and the story, but you're kind of not reading into it deep enough because yes, Paul Atreides is this supposed like demigod. He's Muad'Dib. He's, um, He's the the prophecy. But this prophecy that has been created, it's been created by political interests that created the prophecy to begin with to kind of try to take over the universe. So Paul is more than anything, he's exploiting that aspect. It's not like such mysticism where he is a god, but everybody essentially thinks he is a god, so he's decided to exploit that. And that turns him into a hero in the first book, but by the second book, like he's seeing, you know, the, the consequences of that and like the consequences of him being this emperor of really fucked up universe of greed. And apparently everybody like essentially ends up being a fascist at one point. Some are better than others, but that's how they all seem to decide how to control the spices. Everybody's too stupid to deal with this. So you just your heroes always fall in the Dune series. They become a hero one book, and in the next book they're basically becoming the the villain of the of the piece again, and then it just cycles through. It also
2: has sort of an Abrahamic religious stance too. It it has a mingling with Christianity. Paul Atreides is pretty much space Jesus, but Paul Atreides essentially dies and is reborn as Moadib, and later on he technically dies again and is reborn as a blind prophet and each of these incarnations of him stands for something else and a different furthering of the story and what really makes reading Dune magical and we'll get into the films here in a little while and and a big problem with the translation to the films is when you read Dune it, it truly and beautifully can be interpreted absolutely any way you want to because everything I just said might not be fact it's what I've taken from the book and for example I feel Paul realizes, and this is a shown a little bit in the 2021 movie I, th- I think, it's what I'm reading into as he realizes that he, he didn't even get a chance at life, that he was born into this, it was preconceived by his mother, and it was not his choice, and he knows that from a very early age so by the time he, he quote-unquote dies and becomes Moadib he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows, as I was just raving about with god emperor his his grandson eventually has to do what he chooses not to do because it's it was preset for him and if it happens later it will not be this notion of politics i think he plays both teams and that's just me reading into it it is it is completely beautifully open for interpretations because at some points Uh, Frank Herbert was very vague, he would just give you a a name, this is what this thing is. And you would have to come up in your mind with what the concept was, and every person can interpret that differently, and you end up with, uh, especially with this type of fandom, a great deal of people that all have very beautiful and very interesting concepts that when you sit down and you talk about it, it continues to grow, it continues to further it, and that, that fingerprint of Dune going all the way back to when the first book was published in the 60s, it kind of just put its fingerprint on the stamp of all horror, all sci-fi, all... I mean, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think, even comes with a lot of references from Dune. There's there's the Hodorowsky documentary that actually speaks of this and has a, a great deal of video that has beautiful comparisons from Hodorowsky's storyboards, uh, Mobius's storyboards, and modern pictures going up into the 1990s that you, you can see were used from Dune, but without the original text, without the influence from that, I, I, I think movies, uh, no- novels, I think our culture in general would be incredibly boring. I think Dune is a is a counterpoint, a diving board for so much in our culture, and what really I think is eternal about it, what makes its fingerprint immortal is how you can constantly... I can reread it now and probably see and feel. Th- I mean, this is true with anything. It's not just specifically Dune, but there are so many political ideologies, so many concepts in this movie, in this book that something I read 10 years ago, I've changed and moved as a person. I might read into completely differently now. And it, it lives eternal in that fac- facet.
3: Blech. Well, that's the thing. Like one of the um, things right. we'll get a little bit into the Denny Villeneuve recent film a few of the things that I really loved about the film were seeing things that in the book are very alien concepts that you have to go to the glossary to look up. And there's a little descriptions of what those things are. And Denis Villeneuve was able to visually realize those without explanation, like glow globes in a book are these floating lights that follow people around. It's a lighting source, these kind of automated things. Dude, I know this sounds kind of tacky,
2: but I'm dead serious. I got to see this uh, theatrically, which really was mind-blowing, just for the sound, just to hear some of the sound effects. But there were some things that I have so vividly imagined reading the series that I saw brought to life on screen that really brought the, like, teary, stingy feeling to my eyes of, like, man, this it's so open to interpretation that this filmmaker managed to have the same thought as me and the same dream as me. It's such a... And it's such a nice experience, I think, to 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 know in itself that what Frank Herbert wrote is is able to be translated, but it's still
3: so vastly different from what he wrote. Well, I mean, like visually, he was able to capture a lot of things like that to where like they're there, they're in the background, they're not brought up what they are, but you get the general gist of of what these concepts are now. Also, on that same foot, though, there are a lot of concepts in dune that are so ultra complicated that that you'd have to go into like almost like a 10 minute mini movie to explain what it is and it's kind of disappointing because a lot of people don't really understand what a mentat is and why we need mentats in this in this future universe and brief explanation the butler and jihad where ai and humanity battled humans won and they vowed to never use like artificial intelligence again. So technology is basically not a thing that exists in the Dune verse at this point in history. So mentats are basically people who have trained as computers. That's why they're always advisors to uh, royalty and stuff is because that they always can calculate things in matters of seconds due to, you know, special training and this red juice that they constantly drink and they are echoes of that in the Danny Villeneuve thing you have the Mentad; he has the red stained lips even though they went a little bit more modern art with that that's fine I have no problems with it it's just there's no real explanation of what that character is why he's important and I know it's hard to do that but that's one of the things that kind of was really bothering me but the recent Danny Villeneuve film is because I didn't watch it with my wife If I did, though, I would be sitting there explaining everything that's going on because there's just so much going on in Dune that they kind of leave out any explanation for, which for fans who've read the book, it's no big deal. It's like, oh, cool, that's what a Mentat is. That's an interesting design. I would have to sit there and pause the movie every five minutes to kind of explain what's going on because it is so thick. And I think there's a bit of a failure on explaining some stuff, but... I'm biased in that because I have read the book but I just keep I kept seeing things that were like you didn't really explain this no one's gonna know what the hell it is but on again a thwopter in the film is perfectly visually realized of what it is it it was like one of the most beautiful things in the film was to see a a thwopter like actually mechanically brought to life exactly as it's kind of explained in the book and it's like okay that's kind of cool but trying to explain to somebody why a thwopter is a thwopter and why it is this way and why there is no real technology, except there's kind of some technology. It's just, that's the hard part about doing Dune. That's what horowski was having a bit of a problem with, although he was making a completely different film. But Lynch definitely had a problem with, and why Dune has been so unfilmable for so many years is just, it contains so much stuff that has to be explained that you can't just keep stopping the movie every five minutes to explain, well, this is what this character does. This is their job. Why is Yui so trusted as a doctor? Well, he's got special training. He could never betray anybody like out of anybody in the universe. That's why he's a perfect spy because he was able to Baron Harkonnen is able to break his, his training and all this. So it's just in the film, it's just kind of like, well, you know, the doctor betrayed them, but it's really important why the doctor betrayed them and how. That's the big upset I have. That, and it was a little visually bland. I do prefer the Lynch version as far as production design goes because it is completely over-the-top and unctuous and just so wonderfully visually realized, but it's a mess narratively. It's got a lot of issues.
2: It's really hard to do, you know, this is better, this is worse for me because I have a lot of appreciation for, for both movies at this point,
3: and... Uh, They're nice bookends to each other.
2: Yeah, and even though Hodorowsky's never got made because of the documentary, you can get a lot of, of visual concepts with it. You know, of course, if you're Nicholas Winding Refn, you're the one person in the world that's technically, as as he claims, seen the movie because he got stoned with Hodorowsky at his house and he took him upstairs and for five hours opened up the Dune book and explained everything scene by scene to him. So I guess he got a really lurid experience with all that. But I, they're they're both flawed and it was kind of funny that when I when I was got to watch this in theaters, each time I would find a flaw, it's almost the exact same things that David Lynch had trouble with at almost the exact same scenes. Like the Lynch film doesn't really explain what mintants are either. All they do is let you know well they they you can tell who a mintant is because they have red lips and Brad Duriff plays a character in the film. Pider DeVries, who has a little song that, David Lynch put into the movie. It's a poem, you know, it, it's not anything as cool as the tears and rain. It's the mintant chant, baby. Yeah, it, it's not like uh, the tears and rain soliloquy from Blade Runner, but it, it's pretty catchy.
3: But it does help somewhat explain what's going on with this character. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of sap that thoughts acquire speed. The lips
1: acquire stains. The stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion.
2: And it lets you know, too, like, there's a difference between different types of mintants. There's not just one. There's a mintant, then there's a twisted Mentan. There's variations of absolutely everything. Space and time travel, you just don't jump on a ship. You have to do enough of a certain drug until spice melange, until you become a weird, atrophied creature that can bend space and time. And the funny part is all of this sounds like a mouthful of Greek salad, as the dearly departed Joe Pallotto would say, but it is just one giant fucking reference to not just the U.S., but mostly the U.S.'s relations with the Middle East and the Harkonnen and Atreides houses, they're both the Americans, just different eras. And you could say that the Atreides are liberals and the Harkonnens are conservative Republicans, but when you break the story down, when you look at what is happening here, it is what the U.S. relations have been in, in the Middle East for the last 60, 70 years. We're, we're there for the oil. The oil is the source of absolutely everything on this planet, it runs everything, it's one of the most precious things ever. So what would be the greatest thing to translate that to something that could move space and time and to make that important you have to ban technology. So all of these things are very layered and complicated ideas that, that read and, and just as you suggested you read a chapter and you sit and you percolate with that you think about it the movies both both versions just kind of shove it at you like supercomputer man. Here he
3: is. We're just racing through stuff. Like, that was a big problem I had with the, the Denny Villeneuve, like, the the whole navigator thing. Navigators are incredibly important to the universe because they're the, the, like, top tier of the hierarchy because they are these beings that can basically predict the future and they are the only ones that can enable space travel as in they can, like, when a ship makes a wormhole, the navigator can guide the ship so it doesn't run into planets and bullshit and it can jump because it can... See through time, so they're the only thing. So they're so precious to this universe, and Villeneuve just kind of scrap navigators altogether, even though they're like such an important part of that hierarchy.
2: Well, I'll interrupt you here for just a minute because I I was kind of really bummed about that, and there is a scene in the movie where you get to see some some guild representatives, and I I loved what he was doing with it. I thought it was it's a take on David Lynch, but David Lynch is just a translation from. What you read and and what you can watch in Lynch's and watch in this Lynch went with a much more I, I would say body horror effect as to where this is much more isolated and cold and these guys have on masks that's pumping spice melange into them and you can only assume that they're going to eventually be guild navigators. Denny has I, I don't I, it might have been Rolling Stone I don't know in a recent interview he stated he it, it, that was saved with intent that the they're they're they wanted to do it differently instead of how lynch kind of right off the bat you get to see a guild navigator and it's really fascinating the way david lynch showed it to you because it's like what the fuck is that what that was a human what is this supposed to be so i guess he really wanted it to be in the second movie well now.
3: he went really fucking weird with it and i guess villeneuve is trying to take the story faster and apparently yet slower because we just kind of introduce characters
2: What did he look like in the miniseries? Wasn't it like a weird gold fish man in a tank? It
3: was. It honestly kind of looked like uh, one of the aliens from the abyss almost.
2: Yeah, we've neglected to bring up there's actually a third version of Dune not included. Which is
3: not bad. It's a sci-fi channel original movie directed by George Romero alumni John Harrison. Yeah, John the Man Harrison.
2: I I actually really, really like the miniseries. If you can just... I, and i don't mean to say this like uh, to be rude or to use one of my favorite words i'm not trying to be jejune here if you can get over the fact that it's fucking late 90s well i think it's just 2000 it's
3: cheap it's yeah. cheap
2: in a lot of ways but and they do sci-fi. abide by the book well you get to see iraqin It's one thing that bums me with both movie versions is you never get to see the city of Arakeen and it's a huge part of the book because there's a lot of decadence. There's a lot of bourgeois people that have moved while the Harkonnens were the head of Arrakis to live there and the decadence and the money and to... Uh, you know spice pirates and importers and exporters and people that ha- are living off the backs of the Fremen. And again, making the reference to U.S. Middle Eastern relations, it's it's kind of how you know we 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 as the United States go over and set up puppet governments and just destroy countries and then wonder why they get mad at us twenty years later. And the the, the book is all different iterations of this, and and all of it's left out. But the John Harrison version, you really get to experience how wicked, how uh, Tower of Babel wicked that that this planet has become because of the Harkonnens and how cor- corrupt and terrible they are. And in, in the new film, they're called, what, Harkonnens? They, uh, so who it's,
3: I, I don't know. Like The pronunciation is weird in the new film. I don't know if there's
2: any real pronunciation anymore because the writer's dead. We're, we're left with his son, so
3: it's however he says it. I've already. always heard Harkonnen. I've never heard Harkonnen until the new film. Yeah, I
2: try to pronounce things phonetically, but it does, the, and, and you had mentioned there is a necessity of, of a glossary, and I had added maybe find a friend that has read Dune before. Because there is just some some combinations of letters. I swear he just hit the typewriter two or three times and was like, that's what I'm calling these aliens. Because there's just, I mean, oh, you were mentioning Duncan, Idaho. There's a people that can, technically it's not cloning, but can kind of create clones. I probably will never know how to say their name till I die. There's like eight X's in it. I don't oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Like the Yeah,
2: I, I, I can't, can't
3: remember exactly how to pronounce it.
2: And that's what you encounter through everything, though. I mean, the the the, the Denny Villeneuve version doesn't have any. I have no idea how to say that fucking guy's name, so I'm gonna say it differently every it, you're time. You're correct. It is oh. Denny Villeneuve. He kind of dropped a lot of the science fiction aspect. I mean, he, he embraced it, but dropped it at the same time. And they, like you were mentioning, there's technology, but there's not technology. But in the new version, they don't have guns. They don't have laser beams. Everyone is much more sort of medieval. David Lynch went with a, more of a Star Trek kind of feel that they kind of have phasers and that there is a technology. A
3: lot of that has to do with the shields. And they were really, like, in hard in the, the new version about the shields and how... The blade is the only thing that really is good to penetrate the shields, but you can't really use the shields on Arrakis because of worms. There's a lot of thick subtext and weird shit in this film to every aspect of it. And with Lynch's you have in like the first
2: five or six minutes the emperor makes notion of well over there on camera. I'm
3: fucking these people over.
2: (laughs) Well he also is like they're they're using some sort of new technology with with shields we've never heard of. And it's it's a with David Lynch that was his explanation for the audience of the following scene where it's some not everything's mirror and that's I've seen a lot of reviews where people are like the new version's just ripping off David Lynch. They're not ripping each other off. They're fucking going off the text here. So it's some the ce- book. Yeah, some scenes are just literally mirror translations because they directly translated from the source material. And the following scene in the Lynch version, you experience Paul Atreides played by Cale McLaughlin. I'm not calling him Kyle. His name's Cale now. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm ever going to call the guy and Patrick Stewart and you get to see what the shields are. So having that mentioned a couple moments beforehand helps you, but modern audiences now it's not a weird concept. You can just show it to them. You didn't have to do this exuberant thing with the emperor who is also lacking in this movie that you don't get any appearance from this this I would consider what you're supposed to be reading into as a very evil corrupt entity who is the like a god emperor. They run the whole known galaxy, they pretty much have the power and army of a God. And that's uh, Dune is such a simple story. If you can break aside all of the complexities, all of the reading into what Mintants are and the butletarian Jihad, it's a guy who's really disliked by his boss and gets sent to be fucked over.
3: That's it. <laughs> yeah. And generally what I mean, book I one think Villeneuve, book one. he tried to stick in there and it is in there. It's just not as heavily encoded. As his version is, Dune is so much about politics. It's basically the like the fucking Phantom Menace, and everybody hated the Phantom Menace. So I mean, it all became about lightsabers. Well, I don't Frank know. I Herbert like stuck with like the political angle and how the political system runs in this universe and who's in control, who's manipulating who, and that's what it is. It's a series of like manipulations, people trying to gain power over other people, and like action is almost second to all the complicated like, political pullings and things that have been set into motion by different unscrupulous forces and how those things interact with each other and who who's trying to get in power currently and why. And there's some of that in the Villeneuve version. It's just not as heavy as, I'd say, in Frank Herbert's book. Uh, Lynch did a fair amount of it, but a lot of that is because he decided to have people have weird inner monologues throughout the whole thing uh i don't even know if that was him or that was a studio note that did that i think but. that might have been DeLoreantis. To... <laughs> that seems definitely like it that just one. it over it's trying to explain how complicated things are and who's with who and who's trying to backstab who but that's what's so important to dune is it is about politics it's not about it's not a jerk off fan fiction like fantasy like say being a jedi or like do you really want to be a fremen? Fremen live like fucking shit, but they're closer to the earth. I mean, I mean, they're like they're natives and they have like their own kind of mythology and stuff. But it's not glamorous in by any means.
2: What makes a problem with trying to make Dune into a movie is it's not like the game Clue, which is perfect for movies. It's a who, what, when, in there who done it. You got to figure out the whole point of it. With Dune, it's really imperative at the very fucking beginning. You know absolutely who everyone is to the the extent the book is so long because the first like. 300 pages is like explaining is so complicated it's, you don't even really get into the story you're you're being explained this is what a mintad is this is why we have them this is why there aren't spaceships this is why everybody needs this drug this is who the atreides are this is who the harkonnen are and it just goes over and if you break past that maybe maybe the second half which will be the second movie of denny's film and, and lynch pat the man on the back tried his hardest to make the whole book into one movie, and it ends. It's like, what, another 250, 300 pages that you have to learn this over amount of stuff just to get to the story, and, and the actual story of what happens in Dune is like 300 pages, and it all comes to the character of Paul Atreides, and we've been discussing, you know, Space Jesus or... The it's it, I mean I don't want to I like space Jesus. He's
3: fans, the Quizak so. Hatterack. Hank, say the words. The Quizak <laughs> Hatterack. You are the Quizzac Hatterack. How can
1: this be? Oh, <laughs> well, he is the Quizzac Hatterack. Well, there's
3: that's
2: something we've also uh, neglected to mention whatsoever. You were talking about all of these things are set into motion because of other forces and other figures. So you've got an empire and you've got. With the word empire, I think fascism might go hand in hand with that. I mean, you can look at any great, like Alexander the Great, somebody like that. Imagine if they were a god space emperor and controlled everything. I would say more people are going to be living in poverty and terribly than they're going to be happy. And he's not like a Caligula-style emperor, but he employs the use of fucking space witches who are trained their entire lives with very, very special forms of what is psych so they're psychics. I mean, I don't know any what else to say. They can't read everything. They thought.
3: have yes, they have psychic powers. They, they can ability. do the voice. They have the weirding way. They have all these kind of different mysterious kind of magic leanings. And they advise the emperor. They advise all these things. They're a very powerful house in this universe, but also they're very treacherous because they're trying to manipulate everything for their needs all the time. And
2: it's like you brought up the Jedi. And I think that was, I mean, it's not more, it's more than apt because and it's not like accusatory, but uh, Alejandro Hodorowsky worked quite some time to make Dune into a movie and it didn't happen. And, a great deal of work was put into it. Thousands, like thousands of pages of storyboards done by Mobius. There was a lot of art done by H.R. Geiger. So these went, made the rounds of studios, and a lot of people saw them. So like when Star Wars went into creation, a lot of things were, were borrowed, but the movie hadn't been made. I think it is kind of shitty just to, you know, hey, they stole it from this and that. It doesn't really matter. I think what is the beautiful thing is that Dune managed to influence and create such a big universe, but there is so much... It's so much easier. You uh, Okay, Jedi good, Sith bad. And they're both just kind of space wizards. Okay, I get it. And then there are, are aliens. And you can, you can move along with that. And when you move into the Dune universe, you've got the Benny Gesserit, these space witches, who were once, I would say, kind of like the Jedi. Very pure, very innocent people that were working for the betterment of the world that eventually, as with time everything happens, became corrupted and became part of... The evil empire and, like, Paul's mother, what makes him such a specific person. And and as I was saying earlier, he was forced into this. His mother kind of bred him for this. She's a space witch. And they acknowledge that there is going to be one person more powerful than anyone else that can bend space and time, that can bring a golden path of unity to the world. And Lady Jessica, his mother, Paul Atreides' mother, believes that she has bred him with her
3: husband, the Duke Lido treaties who was only supposed to have daughters, and
2: none of this is yeah, in they, the movie
3: yes, because it's a betrayal. Because the Quizek Hadrec was going to be a male, and it was supposed to be basically what the the Jesuit were trying to get Lady Jessica to do was to have a girl and breed her with a Harconan child to unite the houses, but under basically the power of the the Bene Jesuit. So Lady Jessica basically skipped a generation, had a male child, and he became the Kwisatz Cataract, which they can't control, and they have for centuries been setting this whole plan into motion to try to have control over this kind of demigod that they've created for the universe, and Lady Jessica fucked it all up. So that's kind of the importance of Paul, is he's an aberration who basically becomes this white savior, even though... Uh, he's kind of not doing it for the best purposes. He's manipulating everyone himself uh, to be that because he knows he can get them to believe it.
2: See, and I always, I read a little differently in, in my version of it that I feel that Paul acknowledges what has happened and knows that he has really no choice but to do
3: anything. And Well, does... he has to be that. He understands that, yes, definitely.
2: But I think his what his mother did was like a religious extremist almost, she broke away from them with her own extremism, realizing what they were doing wouldn't be good for the actual universe itself, wouldn't be good for history, wouldn't be good for people millions of eons from now, and produced the Quizak Heterak as her son, brought Paul Atreides onto this earth who becomes Moadib, and he acknowledges in the long run, I-, I think he knows what he's doing and he's not doing it for self-gain, he acknowledges that I cannot be this and and the, to complete this, to make the golden path, he literally has to end up becoming a fucking man worm. And he knows he can't do that. And, and this is my reading into it, how, how I've translated the story over the years. And he he doesn't so much give up, but he acknowledges with his actions there will be reactions. And when he goes into the desert, when he comes back as the prophet and all of this, he knows what he's setting up. And he guides the golden path to happen through his...
3: Paul's son... Leto II, he merges with sandworm babies and for like 30,000 years lives as this emperor, half-man, half-worm emperor of the universe. But ultimately what everyone understands, what Leto II understands is at a certain point, it's kind of like Watchmen and Osmodius. It's to unite the universe, I have to be the most despised thing in the universe so he becomes basically a brutal dictator because it will unite everyone else against me and that will bring happiness and prosperity they need a villain to fight and I will be that villain but he's still a dick
2: he incites something like a a, a universe wide genocide there is beyond billions trillions of death and pain and sadness caused by what he's doing but also something that's very hard to translate and they I think David Lynch did a fairly good job with this Sometimes people are born with what's called pre-science, and they have all the thoughts of ancestors, and they can acknowledge all of these choices that were made by other people, and Leto II has all of this. He can acknowledge his uh, grandmother, his his great-grandfather, his father, Paul Atreides, and goes back constantly, continuously cloning his father's best friend, killing him every time they have a disagreement, until he can figure out, The Golden Path, and there's a a Marvel character, and I can't think of... uh, uh, Wow, I I just... I can't even think of his name. Bindi... Dick Cumberbatch. Plays some guy... Doctor Strange? (laughs) Yes, that... It's very... In in my head, this is kind of what is happening (laughs) later on in the series, that he's trying to do this Doctor Strange act of seeing every variation of what's going to happen, but to do so, he's just got to keep killing his friend, who also... Uh, fucks his daughter, and then he it gets really weird, man. Dune gets weird, and Jason, uh, uh, Jason Momoa, and Duncan Idaho is a very he's a fan favorite in the novel. In every version of the well, Lynch's version, it's just some guy for a couple minutes. And then he gets it's done. Richard Jordan for literally like
3: two minutes. And and they then shoot he dies. him in the fucking face, like
2: boom. Like there's there's really nothing with Duncan, but in in Denny's movie, you've got Jason Momoa. Everybody loves Jason Momoa. I mean, he's he's sometimes he's just Jason Momoa. But he actually does a little song and dance in this movie. It's believable. I I see the relationship between them. He clones him over and over and over and over and over again. And he becomes like a a weird racist, genocidal killer. himself. Everyone at some point in time, like you had said, that you love will get a version of themselves that's absolutely just terrible. What's funny is you don't get like the really shitty people never become nice, though. Like Baron Harkonnen is, is... Pretty awful. But no, that's not true because the Harkonnens kind of become good guys by like book six. So,
3: (laughs) yeah, the Getty Prime becomes like the good planet and it's no longer the. It's because it's like 40,000 years in the future. So a lot of shit changes. That's kind of where you like after you've read Children of Dune and you move on to the next book, you're just like, whoa, you've just started everything anew and this is not even the same universe I was in before and it's ultra confusing and I don't know if I like this as much because that first three book dune dune messiah and children of dune is this nice little package that has a good beginning middle and end and then the others just kind of really fuck with that and just like try to go in some different places and they're not horrible it's just not what i'm particularly interested in dune i just think that first three book run is like uh that's that's right on the money and pretty perfect for the story that I perceived that Frank Herbert was most interested in telling, and then he got really weird himself and started doing even weirder novels and bullshit like that.
2: It's really hard to tell, and I'm speaking presumptuously here because I don't know a lot personally about the man. But for me, when you when you start going through the deeper end of the series, I, I kind of think as he got older, his political ideologies started to change, and then the books start really getting a much more fascistic vibe. They get a lot more violent. A lot of the what philosophy. a fucking a oh ton yeah, a lot
3: fucking. You
2: got a lot of what was it meat meat something throbbing meat meat gristle. <laughs> uh, there's,
3: there's there's something along those lines, there's something yeah. about some
2: weird meat stuff. There's some weird terms, and it gets it's it's I don't I don't want to say ancestral, but it kind is because people are characters are born with pre-science from other characters, so Duncan Idaho's banging his See
3: so, so this is why I don't want to get too involved in anything after Children of Dune is cause it gets so ultra fucking complicated that you're gonna turn a lot of people off from getting into the dune stuff and really you know i'm spending time talking about this just because it's you're fascinated by it because it gets so fucking weird and to me it's just like "Ah, as a lot less interesting
2: well yeah i never uh, i didn't really grow up in a good era for star wars i grew up during the 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 remake the the prequel era rather there aren't remakes at all and and i never really got into it star trek was like nemesis at that time period it was kind of dying i didn't have the glory of a lot of the, the, the beautiful... Like, even even TV shows in the 80s, you could get into the A-team, you could have something to believe in, and I, I never really had, you know, an affinity toward the Lord of the Rings. I tried to read it still this day. I've, I've managed to read The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Similarity, and a couple different things by Tolkien, and it's just not my cup of tea. I, I've tried for the sake of trying, but when I found Dune, it was... It, it just clicked for me. It was a piece where I was like, man, I really get this, and I think a lot of it comes to... A, a, I have a genuine... Uh, I I guess you could say love of politics, despite how angry sometimes it makes me. I love reading and researching politics. I love semantics. I love sociology. And that's really what makes Dune, is there's a lot of concepts that are beautiful and are thought-provoking that really make you think about the world around you and the treatment of other people. And uh, it it becomes completely exasperating the longer you go into the series. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the novels, but I, I really don't... I don't think in at least our lifetime, like God Emperor, is ever going to be a fucking movie. I don't know how far the series could ever be continued. Could be,
3: man. People seem to really get on board with Denny Villeneuve's film. I thought it was going to tank horribly, but it seems to have done okay, and we're getting uh, a part two to the the first book of Dune. So. It might go all the way to Children of Dune. I
2: mean, uh, like like critics aside and peers aside, another podcast that we associate with and talk to and, and, and horror people, just like personal friends on Facebook, I was kind of blown away from like people I went to high school with. How many people enjoyed the movie... And, and
0: weren't and understood bitches. almost none of it,
2: probably. They weren't going home and bitching and asking questions. They were like, I don't know, it's some weird, like, nights and shit in space, and there's these bad motherfuckers and worms. I like it. I can't wait for part two. That's the like
3: one of the weird things about the, the newest version of it. And it, again, just problems. I, I generally like the film for the most part, but. Like Spice. Spice is so ultra important to the story of Dune, and they kind of gloss over it, and they kind of go, yeah, it's important, and uh, it makes you trip. And uh, it's a fuel, basically, for the universe. But uh, just stop worrying about spice so much. And so much of it has to do with spice.
2: I mean, the you were mentioning the Lynch film has the the, the inner monologues and the voiceovers throughout the entire movie. And this film begins with one uh, Zendaya playing Shani. And it's very brief. And the very first time I saw the movie in theaters, chills ran down my spine. They, they're talking about it. You get to see the Fremen. And it sounded really, really cool. And a couple days later, I watched it on HBO. And it... it it was much more vague. I think the theatrical experience, of course, you're going to be stunned and wild by it. But everything is so short. Everything is so choppy. This is what spice does. We can't travel without it. So it's given a, a very vague understanding. And I don't know. I don't know how to say it without being a dick. But I I think that you can't with if you want to do this like it was in this situation a, a millions, millions, and millions of dollars, and you're going to show it at IMAX. You're going to show it on screens all across the world. I think you really have to to dumb it down instead of going into the the tenacious over explanations. This is what spice is. it gets you high, but it also is like gasoline, so which gasoline does you can you can huff it
3: but that that's kind of like you should your drawbacks of everything is can. like it at least in like the lynch version like how many times in like hallucinations, Paul just sits there and spices life, spices, da 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 da, and just kind of repeat these mantras. And the the mantra of fear is the mind killer, blah 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 blah, like yada yada yada. That all adds to the, the like the tone and the, like the weird mystical feel of Dune. And we kind of just when you take out the inner monologue, like that fear is the mind killer quote is like prolificated throughout history and people don't even know it's from Dune, and they just kind of, like, fucking ignore it altogether in the Denny Villeneuve version. I mean, it, it's what makes
2: the beginning of Phantasm so absolutely magical.
3: Coscarelli kind of cribbed a little bit from Dune for Phantasm and, like, importance of this character growing up, and they do the box in uh, the Denny Villeneuve thing, but they just kind of focus on, like, the, the nuts and bolts of this is what it's going to do, and not so much what's going through Paul, it's expected to just be like expressions on his face and acted. And he does an okay job with that, but it's just inferred on and it's not kind of expanded on because there's so much uh, kind of junk philosophy in Dune that is spoken through like Paul's thoughts and stuff. And that really adds the texture of the whole, the like the whole universe of it all. And when you kind of just remove those in favor of more plot motivated devices like Denny Villeneuve has done, it kind of just, it kicks out a lot of that that fantasy and mysticism that is like, so important in Dune, and it just it feels a little sterile. It doesn't. It feels lived in the environment that Villeneuve created, but it's a little too spacey for me, and not enough like like Lynch went over the top, and it was it's colorful at the same time, being very industrial and just making really interesting like design choices, and even John Harrison it, like that is colorful as fuck. The miniseries is almost, uh, and I think that's what's off-putting the
2: first time you watch it. It almost feels like a, a, an early episode of Star Trek when the costuming hadn't quite gotten down right. And they were just kind of wearing silly tunics. And ha- when you watch the Hodorowski documentary, you start seeing what Mobius had done and it's very similar stuff. You go back and you read the books. It was all described that way. Everything was very, very ridiculous and it was made to, I wouldn't even say it's so opulent. Much-
3: that's part of the hierarchy in the galaxy. And that's kind of missing because they went for the gritty lived in style. It's just like, ah, eh, that's kind of boring looking. That's all I got to say about it.
2: Well, it makes the, a lot of the costuming ideas really interesting for the miniseries, the Lynch film, and what Hodorowski was going to do is going back to Frank Herbert's ideas. I think a lot of, of when you look at how like the Emperor is supposed to be, the Harkonnens are all, they have this shocking, very crazy red hair, and they're all very brutish, large, almost monstrous people, but everyone's designed their makeup, the intricate designs of their clothing and stuff I think come from different pieces and times of history like you can look at the early founding fathers in that 1776 style where everyone wore huge big wigs and powdered makeup and then you can go back to uh, Germany and Mozart the same type of wigs and the very decadent dandy clothing and I think you look at all these different forms of history throughout the world not just American history but I do think a, a lot of Herbert's ideas come directly from American history you can combine all of these things and what makes it beautiful is it's still our universe dune doesn't take place somewhere it's not a, a galaxy far far away it's us it's it, it, any of these caladan could be earth for all we know it doesn't specifically matter but what comes together is is this like algamation of all of these different places times and history and who these people are we're led to believe in the first book that the atreides they're they're good people right because that's who we we're we're going through paul is our avatar we're going through as the atreides and assuming they're good we don't really know their history we're led to believe the harconians are bad and other people talk about them are bad And you were referencing the litany and talking about how it's so skimmed over. I think the major importance of the litany and and the Lynch version and the John Harrison version, of course the book, it's the last line of the dialogue, where the fear has gone through will be nothing, only I will remain. Paul Atreides is just one version of this character that we're going to see all the way through until the end of the book. Once he becomes Moadib, Paul's dead. And so the litany, when it's introduced at the beginning of the film, when it's introduced to you, when he's with the Reverend Mother, it is, it's fucking foreshadowing through the entirety of what's going to happen and the transformation of this character. Only I will remain. He is the Kwisah He is the true peace. But he's not pre-confined to what the Reverend Mother wanted. That's why she's there in the first place, to see if this is true or not, to see if she needs to kill him or not. And there's nothing she can do at this point because... He is the prophecy.
3: Like a drawback of, the, of that Villanue version is, is just he wanted to go in kind of a realistic fashion, and I don't particularly want realism. Like all the um, the warriors' outfits, whatever the hell you want to call them, then. Um Sartakar. All the ba- well, not even just the Sardaukar, just all the battle outfits were just like okay, gray, white, black. All right, I could barely tell any of them apart, and it just a lot of the design stuff is just. It's just kind of bland to me and it just doesn't pull me into the universe as although it's it's more realistic, which I mean, if that's what you're going for, definitely that I mean, that it, that could be a positive it in <clears throat> in it. But. I personally don't want realism when it comes to this, I don't need all the realism, I, I can use some some fantasy added to it.
2: I agree definitely when it comes to the, the Atreides and kind of how bland they made the, the city of Arakeen and when you get that big view of, of, of the whole concept of what they're they're moving into, I guess their new house. There isn't much of a color palette. I mean, and I understand that we're supposed to be drastically changing from Caladan, but we don't even really see that either. We've got some really cool segments and some really cool pretty blue sequences, but uh, overall, I'd say the exception for the movie is the Harkonnens. I, I really, really enjoyed. I mean, it's vastly different from anything you've read or seen of them before. And I like how dark it went. I like the overemphasis of uh, they. They. I don't know. It doesn't. I don't know if this makes sense, but it seems like they're very gluttonous, very greedy, very awful people. And by removing their hair, by removing any form of body hair, it almost seems like
3: this. I don't know. Extensive. Well, they're they're like giant fascist babies. I mean, that's really what we're going for. Is they're not mentally like in this world. Like they're they're kind of soldiers and just brutal dictators.
2: Uh, it, it's almost like a shapeless juvenile. It's like there's just something that has come out of nothing with them. But it, They're all id. It, and then you enter a, a problem with this, because you've got Peter DeVries, who is a twisted mintant, and we don't go into the concept of him whatsoever. And I feel the character was almost wasted in this, that I, I I paid attention the first time I was watching, but it took me a while to realize even who he was because they've made them all so drastically similar. And so you've got a really great concept with they're all kind of Michael Myers, they're all faceless killers, and it doesn't matter which Harkonnen is killing you, it doesn't matter who's coming because they're all the same. They are the Viking berserkers, they're psychopathic, vicious warriors, and they will stop at nothing politically or... ...for fun until they have gotten what they wanted... ...and it's always blood, it's always murder... ...you've got a great scene with Rabban... ...where he's just fucking cutting people's heads off... ...and I like what you get to see with them... ...I think that might have been one of the most explosive things with the movies... ...and David Lynch's is fine... ...you've got Jack Nance... ...who I swear to God has more screen time... ...in David Lynch's Dune than any of the actual Patrick Stewart... ...anybody else... ...Jack Nance is in every scene... ...lives in the movie too... He plays a Harkonnen, and they're kind of—Lynch's is like a who's-on-first, and I don't ever feel terrified. One of the villains is Sting.
3: And,
0: <laughs> and a thong.
3: Well, you know? I mean, what he did accomplish, though, is he made them incredibly gross. Like, Baron Harkonnen is, like, bathing yeah. in motor oil, and the, like the heart plug uh, scene being so, like, visceral. How the Beast Rabond drinks the little creature's squeezings, and that, the, like— it's all very gross, very weird, um, incestuous things going on. And it just it adds to this like very disgusting kind of portrayal of this this evil faction. And they're just kind of I mean, they're they're just more brutal. And, and um, well, uh,
2: did you catch the big reference? Uh, and the, this I, I wanted to scream because was I, it a cat you had to milk? Oh, uh, there was no milking cat. But this was something that really, really, I mean, if you've listened to the show for a while, you know I'm a big fan of Apocalypse Now. But there is uh, this is what has happened, that we have turned him into Colonel Kurtz, and it was so visual on screen. It's the first uh, visual time we see the Vladimir Harkonnen, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And he's introduced to us, and he, it's always from behind. And once it finally shows him, he, it's, it's Stellan Skarsgård, he's wearing a fat suit, and they've shaved his head. And he's got, he's sitting in like a steam bath and he rubs his hand up the top of his head and it's exactly like the speech. You're an errand boy, you're a clerk. Are you an assassin?
0: I'm a soldier. You're neither.
1: You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks.
2: The bill. You're, you're you're sent to collect information. Apocalypse now. When he's finally sitting down and he's talking to Willard, that's what. And and now that I've said it out loud, and it's what you don't like about the movie. And it's not that I like this aspect about it, but this this is something. I mean, God, they even did this with King Kong. Apocalypse Now was a cinematic feat. Is a cinematic feat. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Any version you can watch the one with the way too long French sequences. I've actually not seen the new final cut or, or whatever they're calling this one. I've seen the original theatrical, the redo, and all of that. It's it's the story Joseph Conrad wrote. It's about good versus evil. And what you've tr- what Denis Villeneuve and I feel has tried to do with this version is it's not a ripoff, but I think really you take that format of Apocalypse Now, you gotta go up the river, you gotta go all the way into Cambodia to find this person. That's what's happened here, that the Atreides family have gone up the river, they've gone to Cambodia, and they have to face Colonel Kurtz, and you've tried to visually represent to that, to audiences, so people can, oh, he, he's, look at how bad they are, look how evil he is, and when you use, like, like a, a representation, the, the Colonel Kurtz, Marlon Brando, that I think is instant in your mind. I think that's something that would connect instantly. Of okay, they're just generic evil bad guy. That, well, that's see, sort like, of dumbing.
3: Down. I I really enjoy Kenneth McMillan's performance in Lynch's version because it is completely over the top. But that's what I like about it because he is disgusting. He
2: is the greasy. Eating. Yeah, the eating is terrible. And almost every scene, he's got a food, and you can't really tell what it is. It looks like some he's got sort of... boils over his face that he's getting lanced, and it's just this. It's so overly dramatic, and, and that's. I think Lynch really was translating from the book there because the 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 Baron Harkonnen you you read about is very disgusting. He's filled with multiple diseases because of his uh, vile sexual nature. He does love children. He loves little boys specifically. He's a very very nasty person. And I, I I'm I'm presuming here maybe some more of this will show up in in the second Denny New movie because we don't get. We don't even really get exposition with the Atreides. I feel David Lynch at least shows us Gurney. We get the character Gurney Halleck in this movie, played by Josh Brolin, and he's in a couple scenes and they're okay, but again, you, you've you brought this up. We don't understand his importance whatsoever. This guy isn't just like a general. He's pretty much the greatest swordsman in the known galaxy. He has trained hundreds of thousands of armies. He has been paid to work for other people, and his allegiance finally falls upon House Atreides, and that's directly under Duke Leto and he trains the most fearsome warriors in the world there is only one swordsman that is feared more than the Atreides army and that's the Sardaukar
3: Josh Brolin he's coming back for other movies don't worry about it but his importance to the family and how um integral he is to the kind of the society they're building. We kind of, I mean, with Patrick Stewart in the Lynch version, we kind of glossed over that some more. So they've like generally kind of in films just kind of not given um, Gurney his full just due in any of them. But, I mean, he is a very vital character to all of this.
2: I got to ask though, what do you think about the new movie that, uh, so we're, we're, we're million. I'm presuming that this, this whole Dune universe is millions and millions and millions of years from our time where we're, we're living right now. So technology has been... It's gone. There was a jihad, a revolution, uh, whatever you want to call it against technology. It's completely... No
3: more cat playing the piano video. It's gone.
2: TikTok is absolutely gone. Can't watch porn all the time on your phone. There's none of that anymore. But in the new Denny Villeneuve movie, out of all the technology, there's still fucking bagpipes. That's made it. I I don't know. uh, The House of Treaties are like a
3: representation of the Scottish or something. But they're... <laughs> well, but also bullfighting. <laughs> like yeah, bullfighting is such all... a vital part of like your grandfather. Was he fighting bulls and on fucking Caladan? What What are you talking about? And and a lot of all of this is in the the
2: bagpipes aren't in the book. There's a very special instrument that gurney halleck plays and it's it's kind of referenced in this movie. a sitar yeah it's in the dune uh david lynch version definitely but i i guess it's trying to communicate something with the audience or maybe it just came down to they got the soundtrack in and it's like no i i I got a bitchin bagpipe song you gotta put a bagpipe in the movie you gotta figure out how to (laughs) fucking put a bag this listen to this song everybody sits down and checks it out Well, this
0: episode seems to be doing just fine, but we are going to take a quick commercial break with a word from a sponsor.
1: who loves House Atreides? Atreides! Did you know that you can now pledge your allegiance to the Duke right from your very home? <laughs> that's that's right! right! Now, that's a treaty! The sounds of House Atreides. A seven CD set jam-packed with hits. Your favorite songs like, Smile Gurney. <laughs> the and <Harkonnen> Hater Hustle. Call <laughs> me by your name, Moadib. Much more. Now, that's a Atreides. The sounds of House Atreides. Own it today with 11 easy payments of 3,000 salaries or one full payment of 33,000 salaries. My lungs taste the air of time on past fallen sand. They've got water power. They've got air power. And now you can own the Piper's power. Now that's a treaties. The sounds of House of Treaties. Own it today.
3: hey i'm steve i'm crypto zoo and we co-host the steve and crypto show where we chat about pop culture horror entertainment and everything in between and right now you're listening to one of our favorite shows death by dvd when you're done listening to the death by dvd gang find us the steve and crypto show
0: we're available on apple
3: spotify
0: stitcher and just about anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts and now enjoy
3: death by dvd That is somewhat interesting. Over the the three versions of Dune that we've had visually so far, each filmmaker has put kind of their own spin on everything. They're so wildly different. And I guess that is one of Dune's strengths as a, um, a series or a novel series, whatever you want to call it, that there's so many different interpretations that can be made of it. As long as you keep kind of the core story elements in place, then you should have a somewhat successful rendition of dune and i don't dislike any of them i don't like particularly any of them either i don't like none of them have transcended the book for me of going wow they just they made all my dreams come true but each one of them has done something whether it be visually or um narratively in some way with the story have added to the lore of what dune is for me like i when I visualize when reading Dune, I, I see a lot of more of the uh, the Lynch version, the the opulence of of that version, but also this like kind of steam punk narrative, all the same. Um, the John Harrison is a little too colorful and over the top for me, but it, it's not bad. I just wish again it had a bigger budget, uh, but it does get all the um, political aspects of it really well because it does have time. It has time to explore a lot of these different concepts, and. It's very talky, but if you're a fan of the Dune series, you won't have a problem with how talky it is because it's really just going through the meat and potatoes of what the story is. And the Villeneuve version is just like, it's a realistic Hollywood version that is not bad at all. I just find it all to be a little bland. But if you sandwich all these together, you're getting a pretty good version of Dune. If it's like make your own Dune by just picking little aspects out of all three versions of it. And you get like a pretty good representation of what the novels were trying to do.
0: So remember at the very beginning of the show, when I said that this was probably going to be two parts. Well, this is the end of part
1: one.
0: We're going to leave you high and dry in the desert, just like Denny. There's another hour or so to go, but who knows when it's going to air? I mean, I do, but I'm not going to tell you. It could be next week, it could be next year. You'll just have to keep listening to Death by DVD. Speaking of which, if there is a movie that you would like to hear featured on Death by DVD, you know, you can just go to our website, www.deathbydvd.com. You can suggest a movie, you can chat with us, you can skip all of that and directly email us at deathbydvd at deathbydvd.com. You can find us on Facebook, deathbydvd, Instagram, surprise, it's deathbydvd, Twitter, at deathbydvd. We love hearing from you. And with that, the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Be pleasant. is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. I will face my fear, and I will permit it to pass over me. For the fear is gone, there will be nothing.